From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. This podcast is sponsored by Design Within Reach, a modern furniture company founded by and for people who are passionate about design. Become a member of the DWR trade program today for access to the world's largest assortment of in-stock products from Herman Miller, Knoll, Tolix, Emco, Stua, and others, as well as exclusive products available only at Design Within Reach. Visit dwr.com trade for details on how to join. What began as a small upholstery company in a rural corner of North Carolina has grown into a furniture empire. Celebrating their 30th year in business, Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams now oversee a million square feet of manufacturing space, almost a thousand employees, and over 30 retail locations. I sat down with the partners to talk about how they've grown through turbulent times, their hunt for a new CEO, and why their brand is well positioned for the next 30 years. First, I want to sort of talk about how you both sort of first come to to meet one another and and decide, hey, let let's go into to business together. Our audience might not be familiar with your with your story, so we'll do the Reader's Digest condensed version. So, who wants to start with how we how we met? It was a Friday evening. I had gone to the movies with a friend, and after the movie, you wanted to go get a drink. And I was like really tired. I thought, you know what? If I don't go and have a drink, I probably never want to go see a movie again. I'll be sitting home Friday night by myself. So we went to a bar on 7th Avenue called Uncle Charlie's. Walked inside and was there like 30 seconds and he just disappeared. I didn't know where he went to. He was packed. And in the back of the bar, there's a little area that's raised up about six inches, just one step. So I'm standing there so I can kind of see what's going on. And this guy started talking to me. And it was Mitchell. You just kind of walked up and started chatting? Oh, he was so cute. He had little wire rim glasses on. He had madras shorts and a, a white Lacoste shirt, the kind where the, the tail is real long. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, oh, I like that cute and innocent look. So I went up and talked to him. So you went up and, and started chatting, and, and then you hit, you hit it off right from the start? No, because after about five minutes, he left. He was gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. And so then how did you find each other again? So uh, we were talking and chatting up, and I uh, I was looking for somebody to go home with that night. Ah, okay. So and you wanted to move this along. I wanted to move this along. Yeah. And I realized that that was not where he was going, so I was like, oh, excuse me, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, he was really, really a sweet person. And then somehow we ended up talking to each other again. So you hit it off, you got together. Right. And eventually, you guys decided that you wanted to go into, into business together somehow. So we met, basically, Gay Pride Weekend in, 1980, in 1987. In 1987. In 1987. Uh, so that was Friday night, and then Sunday oh. we went to the parade. And just, we started doing a lot of stuff together. And by August, we went on vacation together, out to the Hamptons. I rented a little beach shanty kind of place. It was really crappy. I mean, the water was <laughs> terrible. It was just a mess. Oh, is that right? But, oh, it was. Oh, but okay. we were together, and we, right. we just started talking about having a business together. Now, a point of reference to that is my best friend since I'm 14, a guy and a girl, they met when they were 9 years old. They got married when they were 18 years old. And they worked in his parents' home furnishings business, eventually taking it over. But they worked together together since they were 18 years old, basically. 
And I loved the idea that a couple could be together all the time. And I thought, I thought it was just really great. Um, so I wanted, to do, I wanted to be with him all the time. And you wanted to be with him all the time. And, and Mitchell, what were you doing professionally at the time? At the time, I was working for Lane Furniture, okay. which is a big furniture manufacturer sure. with many divisions. And I was running their national accounts, which at the time was JCPenney, Levitt, Sears, Montgomery Wards, and Wicks, and their national gallery program. And Bob, what were you doing? I was working for Seventeen Magazine. So I was in the promotion department. I don't know if I was the art director at that point or... You were not yet, but remember, we, I helped you negotiate getting an, inc- an increase oh, and yeah. a promotion. Mm-hmm. One of the many ways that Mitchell would come to help you in your career. Well, we help way. each other. Oh, we, right. we truly help each other. Yeah, because he never helped taking the trash out. never helped doing all these other things. <laughs> we get to the nitty-gritty of that. Yeah. Because okay. I got that list. <laughs> Love this conversation. Uh, so, okay. So you're working for Seventeen Magazine, and you, were, you had uh, studied graphic design, if I recall? Okay. And, and you were working at Lane. Right. And, but you, you love this idea of, hey, we could spend all of our time together. Yeah, let's do something. Let's, if, work, if let's we do something business. together. And, and what sort of, at the time, what were you thinking would be a reasonable business to start in 1987? Well, but that summer, what we, one of the things we talked about was doing an apparel line of shirts that when you opened your closet, you would look in and, and that would be your favorite shirt. I can't remember any other businesses we talked about. That was the main one. And it wasn't until time passed, um, we ended up buying, I, and I got moved from working in New York to having to live in Virginia. Mm. And uh, okay. the office was in Alta Vista, Virginia. And we lived in Lynchburg, Virginia. And then we ended up buying a farm in, um, well, we didn't end up buying a farm. We decided maybe we'd start a vineyard slash Christmas tree farm. Okay. In, um, and I then remember like two weeks after we signed the paper, he got transferred to North Carolina. And a, oh, a, you're kidding. A, a good promotion, got transferred to Hickory, North Carolina. I mean, I had a really a good position at that time, good money. So we decided, well... Forget the farm that we just the bought. Farm the the, the just Christmas bought. tree farm. Yeah, because you that know you, who was going to have to be out there in the fields all day. Well, but you look like you're someone that, that, that you would enjoy that, Bob. You, so were, did you envision you'd be out there chopping the trees? And, and is, that what, is that what it was going to be? I figured it was going to be a lot of work, especially since neither one of us knew anything about wine. Right. And, um, right, so vineyard slash Christmas tree farm. Right? That was the backup. Okay. Christmas tree farm. But, okay. I had, but I had in my mind, if we had Christmas trees, that this Jewish guy could take those Christmas <laughs> trees to New York, and I knew I could merchandise them and sell them better than anybody else. That was the other thing, Mitchell. I wasn't going to go there, but since you brought it up, so this Jewish family, and you think, I mean, did you tell your family that you were investing in a Christmas tree farm, and did they understand? Did you? No, oh, I don't think we really talked about you, that. We, they knew we bought a farm. didn't share that But with one them. of the other things things that happened is we bought this farm and it was secluded it was gorgeous and then once we had it, we started to realize how much it would cost to bring water to the farm how much it cost to bring electricity now this was not an inexpensive excursion and all of a sudden it's like well maybe this isn't such a brilliant idea especially when there's money in hand to move to hickory and we could have a nice life together. Yeah, there was no way we could afford to do this. Yeah. And look back on it. So, so well, there was no way we could afford to start a furniture company. We did that anyway. <laughs> exactly. But Which we we're going to get to. But we found a way to do Which that. Which we're going to get to in a minute because it sounds like that's coming up fairly soon. So then so, we got to North Carolina yes. and I was working for this company. And, you know, it was really interesting. It was uh, the late 80s. I had been out pretty much in New York. 
Uh, but then working for this company, I kind of had to go back in the closet, sort of. I didn't really talk about it. People really didn't know who Bob was. And then we moved to Hickory, and I just couldn't continue living in the closet. Um, and, and we just bought a house in the neighborhood. We were, we were like living life. But then it was made very obvious to me that, um, you know, if there was going to be a dinner for management people, um, I was invited, spouses were invited, but my spouse wasn't invited. That's when I really started to get perturbed uh, because I was like, you know what, I'm a, I travel a lot. When I'm home, I'm not leaving him and not going some, not going And going to, to a work function, yeah. not being able to bring your partner. And, and he's yeah. the sweetest person in the world. Why wouldn't they want him to be there? And, and the, the CEO, who I challenged with it when he told me that, I, I said, well, why wouldn't you want Bob to be there? I mean, who cares? And he said, well, actually, my wife, you know, she's very traditional. And that really made it start to sink in that, oh. holy Toledo. Like, I mean, it would be one thing if it was a redneck man, bigot kind of person. Right. But uh, his lovely wife, like, his and then, wife I started, felt then, I, then I really started to understand the bigotry that existed and that, that you kind of didn't see on the surface. Right. Well, that might have been his excuse, too. No, that might have been his excuse, you too. You blame it on the wife. Well, that's true. You quickly realize I can't stay here, right? Right. So, to make a long story short, we um, so, so we started talking again about starting a business and came up with an idea to have a business. And at work, at the same time, I was becoming increasingly impatient because they were really not nice people. They didn't take care of customers very well. They didn't take mm. care of employees. Okay. At the worst imaginable cafeteria. And when I brought it up to them, they said, "Well, you know, we make money on that cafeteria." And they're more interested in making money than giving decent food. They were they were terrible to customer service. I mean, I would sell something to to a, a retailer. They'd put it on the front page of the catalog, and they wouldn't get their samples in the store. They would have inventory, and it was just not the way I wanted to do things. It had become so tense that the CEO of the organization came down to see me, and proceeded to fire me, and give me severance money and vacation money. And I was like, hot dog, because that, that, <laughs> that day I was really going to quit. Bob and I just decided we don't want to work around people like that. We just didn't want to live our life like that. I'd rather make less money and be happy right. than to live in that kind of a tense environment. So, and, and Bob, what were you doing at the time when you followed along on this, on this move to, to Hickory? What were, how would you I was working yourself? for an ad agency okay. in, in Hickory, a small, small little agency. Mm-hmm. And what was exciting at the time was they had these little boxes on the desk known as Apple computers. Ah, the classic with the little four-inch screen. Sure, I I remember And so that's how I learned all the computer graphics and stuff. But can I just, I just have to back up for a second. So we, we moved to Hickory. Right. We knew each other. I didn't totally know his tastes or his style sense, anything like that. I mean, I knew, I knew enough from his New York apartment that he had nice taste. And we move into this house this, in the neighborhood. And because of the money I was making, I said, don't, don't work for six months. Like, get the house together. We've got all these divisions in the company that I get wholesale cost from. Mm-hmm. You know, let's furnish the house and make it wonderful. And he built the most incredible bed for us to have. I, I, it's, it was like a Corinthian column, kind of really clean, oh, modern. It's okay. really interesting bed. And then uh, in the dining room, we had a vintage metal base with an octagonal glass top. And he picked out upholstered dining chairs and put them in floral fabric 
nobody was printing with floral fabrics. They were printing like a white fabrics. And above that, he had a, a he created a chicken wire chandelier with Christmas lights in it on dimmers, and it was the most incredible dining room that anybody had. And uh, Dorothy Callens, does that name ring a bell? Oh, sure. From Metropolitan Metropolitan Home. Home. Yeah. she came down with Newell Turner and some other people oh, my goodness. Uh, to okay, visit sure. customers and things. But because we were friends, they called and said they were coming, and I said, "Well, come over for dinner." And they came over for dinner, and Dorothy leaned over to me and said, "This is gorgeous." And I said, you know, that Bob had created it all. And she said, he's really talented. And I said, I know. I'm going to take advantage of that. <laughs> and, and, and then, but, but by then, he had started at the agency. Okay. Uh, so, okay. so then so he was working at the, was by working then, the agency. By then, it was kind of the six-month right. uh, getting the house okay. ready was finished. And he got a job at a really nice agency in town. So, okay. So you took, you took this job, and it sounded like you were really engaged and, and enjoying it and learning a, a, a lot. I was. I was. It, it, was a, it was a nice agency. Most of the projects we worked on were local businesses. So um, it was a great way to sort of learn the community and the people. A great way to get acclimated. So, but you're realizing, oh my gosh, I've got this amazing furniture guy, and what, what can we do with that? So then, then as we evolved and started talking about having this company, then I get booted, so we started the company faster than we anticipated. We created a collection. We didn't have a factory. <laughs> And we had some, we had a, like you go to a reupholstery place and we had them make some chairs for us. And through my brother, found out about a factory that existed a few miles, you know, 20 minutes from us that was operating at like 50% capacity. Mm -hmm. And when a business operates at 50% capacity, they're not making money. They yeah. need business. Yeah. So we met these people that were super nice. We worked out a deal with them where we could buy into ownership of the factory because I didn't want to just work for somebody at that point. We bought into ownership. We created this line. They had a line. So they kept selling their line. We did our line. And ours became kind of an instant hit. And we proceeded to sell 5,000 dining chairs to JCPenney and Levitt's before we even started manufacturing and 800 tables. But part of the reason we were able to do that, <clears throat> and as your listeners are listening to this, yeah. you know, when you start a company, part of the thing is to, is to figure out how to present yourself as a real company, not just the fly-by-night. Because of Bob's advertising abilities, when I went to see JCPenney or when I went to see Levitt's, we had taken their advertising format, like their catalog pages, and Bob created what our product would look like in their catalog, what our product would look like in their advertising. And it was such an incredible presentation as I look back on it that the, the buyers later said to me, when you came in and showed us the chairs and the advertising, it wasn't like are we going to buy yes or no? It's what are we going to buy? Which pieces are we going how, to buy? How much can we order? Yeah, how much can we order? They were sold right right away. Yeah. And you had the relationships from, yes. from your previous work, so you so you knew how to gain entree so, into pennies. And, so even though I had worked for a company that didn't deliver consistently good quality <laughs> on time, they knew that my word was gold. Okay. And that they knew that Literally. I was going to take care of them. That, I, that if I told them I was going to get delivery for them, I was right. going to do it. If I was going to train in their stores, I would do that. And I mean, as a salesperson, you have nothing else but your credibility and your reputation. And I, you know, I guarded mine very, very carefully. I mean, part of this story also is I went to JCPenney with three collections to sell them. Two different tables, chairs around it. And then one of their best-selling collections was a Queen Anne collection from Bassett and with, with wooden chairs. So we made these beautiful upholstered chairs to go with it. 
we were presumptuous enough to say, oh, put our chairs with your Bassett <laughs> Surely table. you want our, sure, our sure, Surely the Bassett people yes. won't mind. So then, then I, go, I fly from Texas to Florida, go to Levitt's, show them nine chairs with a whole bunch of stuff. And the guy at Levitt said to me, can you come back on Monday? All the regionals are going to be here. I'd like to present it to them. And my whole thing was, I went to, when I went to Penny's and when I went to Levitt's, I said to them, just give me a test in one store. Just let me test to show you that this stuff can sell. That was all I was trying to sell. I get back from Levitt's agreeing to come on Monday. I get back from Levitt's and I get a telephone call from the Penny's buyer. He said, we had a meeting. We really love your stuff. The table and chairs that you showed. If we wanted to buy it for all stores, all 266, and put it in our catalog, could you deliver to us? To which I said, yes. Got off the phone with him. A couple hours later, he called me again. He said, I want to ask you one other thing. I know this is a lot. The Queen Anne chair for the Bassett table, we want to put that with for all stores. So that was thousands and thousands. Then on Monday, I go to Levitt's, and I, I show it all the regional people. I, you know, they, they say, well, you know, go outside. Well, they're huddling. I come back in. I'm, I'm almost in tears, like, remembering the story because <laughs> it was so exciting it's and so exhilarating. Great. But I came back, so I showed them nine chairs, and they looked at me and said, these three chairs, can you make armchairs to go with them? Because I just showed them side chairs. And I said, yeah, we can oh, do that. of course. Great. We'll take all of these plus those three, to which I said, well, what about the tables? And they said, no, we're not going to buy any tables from you. And I was disappointed in that, but <laughs> I took the orders. But meanwhile, you got this huge it. So we So that was, that, that was like the end of May, early June, and they wanted delivery in August, but we ended up working it out so that we were going to deliver to them the very end of August or September. We got back with our partners. We got production going and, uh, and the rest. And, and the exciting thing was the stuff sold and the reorders is what counts. Right. So, so not only did you get those initial orders, right. it, it gets out on the selling floor and, and, it, and it, it's met with great success, yeah. it sounds like. But when you're presenting yourself and you, and you show people marketing ideas, you know, how, how to advertise something, if I had just gone in with the chairs and said, you know, look at this and left the, the other part of it, it's kind of like closing, closing the whole loop, closing the sale. So you leave a, a customer without many objections, without much yeah. Uh, to, yeah. to think about to, to be successful with your product. Well, and you knew all of the things that the company that you had been working for previously hadn't been doing. Yes, right? I knew the weak spots. And that was a huge advantage for you going huge in. Advantage. And at the time, what were you imagining it could get to be? Because obviously you couldn't have imagined it being this scale. What, what did you first, hope it would be in I the beginning? First spoke, wait, 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 wait. Tell them the little thing you sold me on. Well, this, when, I <laughs> first, when I first <laughs> talked to Bob about really doing this, I said, you know, we could have a little company we could we could sell to I could sell to twenty or twenty five accounts myself. I don't have to hire all these people, and we could like work four days a week. We, we could run our production, and we could do five or seven million dollars worth of business, right. and we could have like a nice little life. And as Bob says, it's not that um, I was lying; it's just that I can't count. <laughs> on the number of days a week that you were going to end up working or, or all the, the customers, customers that were going to come on. Yeah, so I go, I go and sell to customers that had, you know, Penny's had 260 stores, Levitt's had 100 stores, then we sold to Crate and Barrel, they had a few stores, also the Pottery Barn, they had a few stores, so it, it just kept, it, it was only 20 or 25 customers, but they were big ones. 
and and they just got bigger and bigger. And they just they got bigger and bigger. More and more well, with all you. of those customers, when we started with them, they were very very small. Right. But we but we had the vision to recognize that pretty home furnishing stores in high traffic areas was the future, not big furniture stores and destination locations with low traffic. What were you calling yourselves in the in the very beginning? How would you presented yourselves as an organization? So we so we named the company Design Line. Design Line. And when we went to trademark the name <clears throat> or copyright it, somebody already had that name actually in, in the next county over. So I was in with my lawyer and uh, he's, he, I, I said, oh gosh, I can't believe this. And he said, well, call it Mitchell Gold Design Line and nobody can own that. And then just drop the Mitchell Gold part, just use Design Line, which we did. Then as we went out into the marketplace, stores like um, we eventually sold to uh, Lazarus in, in Ohio and Burdines in Florida, in their computer system, when they would put the name in, Mitchell Gold's design line, of course they can't have just all those letters. the Mitchell Go would come up, or Mitchell right. G, or Mitchell, okay. I mean, for so many long people would refer to the company as Mitchell, as the Mitchell company. But Mitchell Gold became acceptable, and we started building some brand awareness with that. And then as time went on, I, I want to say like four or five years later, um, I knew a lot of these, I knew a lot of editors, so I would invite them to come to our showroom. I mean, at one point I came to New York and went around and saw Lou Gropp at House Beautiful, Dorothy at Med Home, sure. yeah. you know, all these different people, and enticed them to come to the showroom. I had heard that Lou Gropp liked lemon bars. He loved lemon bars. <laughs> and when I went in to see him, I said, and by the way, at our show, we have the best lemon the bars most in town. lemon bars. Because I had come. found them at this really great bakery. But it was little things like that that you, know, you, just, you, have, you have to research and find out about people uh, to get them to be, you know, to let them know that you know who they are and you care about them. And we did similar things with customers. And we still serve those lemon bars at Morehead today. Because that was so successful. We're taking a quick break to remind designers that members of DWR's trade program enjoy special pricing on everything, even classics. Need it yesterday? DWR's in-stock selection can help get you out of just about any jam. Visit dwr.com trade for details on how to join. So right out of the gate, you're, you're met with this incredible success, and you get all of these great orders, and you, so you go back, and fortunately, your, your, your partners and can help you to, to manufacture, sort of quickly kind of ramp up, right? right? right. Because one of the things that I, that I wanted to talk with you about was how you scaled this business so quickly. And, and, and I know how challenging that, that must have, have been, when did it? When did the business start to really need a, a whole other factory? When did you have to move and, and do things? We put an addition onto that factory probably what a, two years after yeah. we started, and then we put on a third addition. And we also realized that as the building expands, the parking lot expands. So we rented a second building, and that wasn't too bad. The stuff between the two buildings, and then it was a third building, then a fourth and then a fifth building. And the logistics of moving the product from one place to the next during this whole manufacturing, because it'd go from cutting to sewing, it just became more and more trouble. I mean, we were spending more time moving stuff around than we were building it. And we, we really took a good look at our business, who our customers were. We had good customers. We, we had a solid business. And then we so we, we and this really was about need, ten years later. Yeah, we, um, we really need a bigger. We we need a big facility. We, like like then, then we started thinking about not not just adding, but like what do we need? And then we bought seventy acres of land, and put a 
at the time, 250,000 square foot facility on it. Well, we started with 200, but yeah. before we broke ground, we scaled up to 250 because we could just see we were going to outgrow it sooner than what we planned. And now that plant is three and a quarter or 340. And we have all together, we do have uh, three locations, so altogether we have a million square feet in a North Carolina. A million square feet in yeah. North Carolina yeah. of production facility. Mm-hmm. And, and is most everything that you sell made here in those facilities? All of, the upholstery all of the upholstery that, we make that you do is, is made in North Carolina. Right. And then we globally source tables, bedroom furniture, and so on. And some of the tables we do make in America also. Mm. Okay. So, so scaling that up, did you did you have to become expert at all, all of these different things that you never thought you would you would learn about how to how to grow a factory, how to create? And I wouldn't say an expert, but we did have to have a pretty good understanding. And one of the things that we realized too is that every time it seemed like every six months when we would have like either Christmas break or or Fourth of July break, um, instead of people having the the week off and being able to get some rest and enjoy themselves, we were having to reshuffle the whole factory because we were having to add more workspaces. And the way it was laid out was you add something in the front, everything behind it had to get moved down. And it just became very inefficient and a lot of time work. So one of the things that we did when we planned the new factory was how can we lay this factory out so every department can expand without having to affect things around it. Right. And it was interesting because we basically laid the factory out from the middle out. So all the manufacturing is done in the middle, and so if any area needs to expand, there's room for them to expand out. And But we're still keeping the product moving through the most efficient way possible. And it's been really great because our business has changed over the years. Um, when we were moved into the factory, we were doing tons of slip covers, so we had a huge, huge sewing department. Um, and big cutting departments because of all the the fabric and slip covers being cut and sewn. But our business has shifted over the last few years. We do a lot more tailored upholstery. So we're still cutting a lot of stuff, but the sewing is definitely a little bit less. Mm. But two years ago, we added draperies to our line. So we were able to figure out how to take advantage of the sewing areas that we had and create new product. And what what drove the decision to to, to go into that? Because that's a whole other business. That's you know, in our stores, you just look around and customers want to do their. You see what people are you, asking. We have for. a lot of customers who yeah. want. We have a lot of customers that want to buy everything from us. They, so they love your whole look. Yeah, they like right? the look. They just so, want to take it. So why all. not? Why not make draperies? Right. I mean, so why, why limit sh- why what, they can, what they can buy from you? So it just seemed a natural yeah. evolution of, of what you were doing. So, as you talked about, the company has grown dramatically. Here you are, you, you probably can't even believe it yourselves, it's 30 years. <laughs> right. Right? And you announced that you are finally going to look for a new CEO for the organization, right? So, right. so last year you sort of make this announcement, we're going we're to start this, this search, but I, but I know that this cannot be easy to, to do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 gone. The search has gone on longer, but when we started the search uh, with our investment partners and the search firm that we used, uh, Spencer Stewart, which is you know one of the finest, uh, we committed that we were not going to settle for somebody, and we really wanted somebody with great retail experience and somebody with with a heart is the best thing I can say. Is mm-hmm. somebody that, that would come in and care for the team as we do. I mean. Heck, I could get hit by a trolley tomorrow, and Bob could. We, you know, we want 
we want the continuity of the company to continue and somebody that has the same vision of uh, you know not taking the brand and oh let's make a cheaper brand let's do this let's do that but let's keep this going the way it is and we're getting close mm. to finding somebody I've promised an exclusive here on that. <laughs> I want to hear first no, um, I, I know I know Caitlin Caitlin, Caitlin uh, I, I, the, I promised yes. that to Caitlin you suggested that it might be soon but it I, might be soon so but, we'll, we'll, okay. we, sh- we should know within the next month or so there's a lot of dynamics that go into it and I just you know want to make sure that the new person is on the way Um, but it's important that you know we really come to an understanding that that we want this business to continue you know you said earlier like did we ever think it'd be like this we never thought we'd have a business like this and it's so exciting but we wanted to have continuity and a lot of the people that work for us they left where they were working to come work for us because they believed in what we were doing right we have an obligation to those folks yeah, and and it's it's an unusual person yeah. that can bring. So as you were saying, the, the retail expertise, but also the the caring and the and the heart for the organization. Well, and we have a big manufacturing business, and yes. we have a hospitality business, and yes. an office business. So we, you know, we we've got a lot of businesses going on. So we, we need somebody is that a whole other yeah, business altogether, which has been growing for you yeah. dramatically. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and and so are you making big investments in that in that part of the business? And, yes. And so what does that mean? So what do you have to build out to really well, build so, an e-commerce business? You know, to everybody's amazement that when you first have a website, you think, oh, that's it. <laughs> but no, you have to keep doing it. And then what happens is, no, the architecture of the website, the basic architecture, the bones of the building are antiquated. So we had to redo the architecture, bring it, you know, much more up to date. Um, n- now, you know, you, you, you can look on our site and look at a sofa and put it in any one of our 300 fabrics and you can change the pillows and you can change the welt and you can make inside and outside. And we're perfecting that and making that bigger and better. Then you start saying, well, you know, the, the checkout page, well, that's not as up to date as it could be. We just did it a few, two, two or three years ago. Right, but now we're feels, redoing that again. Yeah, so you're constantly yeah. updating and redoing these things. And we've hired a group to work with that we really want our site to be beyond best in class. I mean, our site should be better than anybody else's. Not so easy to do, so we're really working to make that happen. I know that you're also looking for sort of a Chief Marketing Officer, right? right? right. And, and, and what are you looking for in that position? What's important to you there? So, you know, marketing has really changed in the retail landscape in the last three years, five years, ten years. Um, I often say, you know, I, I yearn for the olden days at Bloomingdale's. We advertised in the New York Times, maybe in New York Magazine. We had catalogs, and then maybe we did some TV. But it was easier, just a few things. Today, there's so many things. I mean, omni-channel is, there's so many different things to do, and it's more complicated. Uh, so what we really want is a modern marketing officer who understands what omni-channel is, that it's... The, the website drives so much traffic into our stores. The, our, our designers in the store use the website to show a customer a chair and a different fabric. Um, you know, it, it, there's such a interusing of everything, it's incredible. And we need that somebody who understands it, who understands what influencers are, who understands watching our reviews and making sure we have great reviews. And if we don't have a good review, that tells us something and we should respond to that with that particular customer. Uh, so we really want somebody that will have a vision into the future. And frankly, 
um, you know, over the years, we were the first to put, what I say, half-naked models in and really get people's <laughs> attention. We, we were the first in the furniture industry to really have a dog that everybody's like, oh my gosh, look at that dog. It's the cutest thing in the world with right. Lulu. Sure. Uh, we need some fresh energy. We, we need some fr a fresh look. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that Bob and I are jaded about it, but, but one thing is we do not want to be gratuitous in our advertising. We don't want to put a half-naked person in just for the sake of that. Uh. But we do need, we, we feel, for the future to, to find the, the next new thing. And we want to do it with other people. We don't want to just do it with the two of us. So it's not that we can't. It's just that we, it's more exciting when you bring more people into it. And we've got a tremendously talented marketing team. Uh, we put them all on an assignment a few months ago to just give us fresh ideas. And, yeah. and they came up with such good ideas now implementing those things. So I, th I think the big, uh, one big thing that Bob and I have recognized in the past few years is it's changed from a company where he and I made all the decisions to being a company that's much more collaborative. Sure, and, and, and so you've brought some new voices to the, to the table and, and, and some team members that have worked with you for a long time. And Bob, you've got a team of people that have been working quite closely with you on product development. And you mentioned to me that Mitchell's team's a little bit bigger than your team, but that, that's par for the course, I'm, I'm getting the sense. Well, right? I mean, I have manufacturing reporting into me and finance and all those things. Of course, of course. But, but I think what is unusual about our partnership, uh, because a lot of times people say, oh, well, you know, here's two partners. This is what this one does. This is what that one does. We do that to some extent, but we don't do a, a, a catalog without Bob's approval and, and input and then approval. I mean, we, we, we both have to come to an agreement on that. We review the P&L together, the profit and loss statement together. I mean, he's very tuned into it. Ne neither of us are super, super sophisticated about financing of this level, but we have people and we're involved in the meetings and we're talking to them all the time. I mean, he and I have a synergy about style when we're traveling to a show or we're seeing a hotel in Budapest, who knows where. Right. Uh, you know, we, we see something that interests us. So that's, it's really working together that way. It's not solely in silos. That seems to be one of the greatest stories around this incredible legacy of Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams is the partnership that the two of you developed early on. And, and for those that might not be familiar, so we, we start this story with this romantic involvement and, oh, we're going to start this business together. The two of you separated from your romantic involvement. How long ago was that? 17 years ago, 16, 16 years, years ago. Yeah. So to, to the outside world, I'm sure people in your inner world obviously all knew what was going on, but I think to the outside world, this was relatively seamless. People really didn't, didn't know if they didn't, weren't familiar with the whole situation. And many people might not have even ever known that you were together in the first place. Right. When, you, when you look back on it all, what's been the, the secret to this incredible partnership? What's, what's made it work as well as it has over all of these years? in spite of what some people might think when they're around us and we bicker with each other. <laughs> Which I we, think is so fun. And yeah, I, I mean, I sort of love it. It makes it a little more fun. Yeah. But we ultimately are kind to each other and we cherish each other's dreams. And, you know, I want nothing more than incredible success for Bob and happiness. And I believe that that's what he wants for me. I mean, there's, there's a certain re respect um, toward each other and a certain amount of love. And every so often, you just want to take a stick out and smack him up against the side of the head. But, you know, <laughs> I think that's just all part of it. I mean, I, I won't let anybody else smack him up against the side of the head with a stick. But, you you want to be the one. But I will be the one. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to smack me, just ask him. <laughs> <laughs> You'll do it for me. 
Yeah. But but you but you both recognize how much you've done for each other yeah. and that you have each other's best interests at, at heart always. And I, and we we trust each other. That's a huge thing. I yeah. mean, I, I don't ever feel that Bob is doing something to undercut or undermine me. I believe he feels the same about me. Because he said it in one interview. He said something about, well, there's nobody I trust more than Mitchell, and there's nobody I trust more than Bob. Well, and, that, and that's a great feeling to have in, in a partner. Now, you mentioned to me that uh, at, at some point during the business's growth, you brought in some, some investors, sort of mm-hmm. family yeah. funds. Or it's a family fund. It's okay. not our family. Right. Oh, no. But it's, it's known as a family fund mm-hmm. because it's not equity investors who bring in investors to that, and then they have a, a, a window of they want to come in, build the company value, sell it in three or four years or five years. It's a family using their own money. It's a family using investment. their money, and... Uh, they want to steward a company to a new place. Mm-hmm. And they, they particularly focus on founder entrepreneurs who stay in the business. And, and is that, so that's what they're hoping for you, that you're going to continue to stay yeah. in the business. Yeah. And so when, when the CEO is finally found mm-hmm. and, and, and put in place, what do you hope your roles will, will become? Well, his role will continue as it is. Okay. It's more my role... Um, CEO means chief executive officer, which is responsible for the day-to-day running of the company. I am at the point where I do not want to run the everyday business. I don't want to know about this person being hired or fired and interview this person. I'm tired of doing those things. Uh, And hopefully it'll give him the time to do the things that he's really great at, and that is out visiting customers, selling, selling to them, calling on them, getting them excited about stuff. Because he can make the contacts that some people can't, and that's what he's always been so great at. Oh, that's what he loves doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I could call that's what really pretty much built this any. That's what built this business. Mm-hmm. It is Mitchell and, and and his sales ability and his ability with people. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and I, I mean, your your tremendous designs yeah. and, and ideas, right? But I mean, Mitchell was out there. Closing, I'm, closing I'm, those I'm deals, gutsy right? enough to call top people. So, right. like, like a, a year and a half ago, I called the CEO of a major hotel chain that we'd been selling to but in a small way and told him I wanted and asked if I could come see him I'd met him at a breakfast before went in to see him talked about some ideas by the time we finished uh, he brought a whole bunch of his people in and, and the question to them was why aren't we buying more from Mitchell Golden by Williams and now we have a significant amount of more merchandise with them we're doing millions of dollars more business I love the hunt you know, I love to think about where we should be selling and to go out and sell to them. I, I, you know, one great old story is 20 years ago, I was in Seattle calling on a customer and I wanted a cup of coffee and asked somebody to said, oh, you got to go to this place called Starbucks and it's right down the street there. And I went and there was a line out the door and I was in line. I said to somebody, what, what's the story here? Oh, this is Starbucks. It's so fabulous. They have like 50 stores throughout the country or some number. And I looked and I saw all these little wooden chairs. And I thought, gosh, if I could sell these people two leather chairs for each store, that'd be 100 leather chairs. I'm going to call them. And I, and I, I was told they were in, in Seattle. <laughs> I love that he still thinks in this, in this way. So Wait, I, I could close this deal. So I call. I could do that. <laughs> I, I, I call. I, I find out Howard Schultz is the CEO. I call Starbucks. I ask for him. Uh, I say to his assistant, you know, I'm Mitchell Gold. I'm in the furniture business. I'd love to come in and see Howard. I didn't say Mr. Schultz. I remember that. I was saying Howard, like I knew him, and blah, blah, blah. And she, and I said, I'm, I'm just in town for the day. I can come this afternoon. She gets back on her phone and says, yeah, can you come in two hours? I go. I meet him. <laughs> I start, you know, talking to him, telling him what I'm doing. 
And then we both realized he had talked to Steve Gordon, the founder of Restoration Hardware, sure. the week before and said, I love this leather furniture that you have. I would like to have it for my stores, for my coffee shops. And Steve said, well, then you have to talk to Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams because they make the most fabulous stuff. But I didn't know that Steve had said that to Howard. Howard didn't know that I didn't talk to Steve. What are the and chances? it was just serendipitous, and it created a long-standing relationship. But I, you know, and, and so I, I want to do more of that. And we have some vision for the future of where we can go, but it takes time to do those things. As you think about the future now, so, so we've got a conference coming up in September that Business of Home is putting on called The Future of Home. Mm-hmm. What do you see? For, for the future of home? What, what's, what's driving some of the ideas with your business? About Do you mean for a home that somebody lives in or for a home well, furnishings or, industry? Or, or where the home industry goes over the next sort of 10 years. I think the whole 3D planning is going to be a big platform, a, a, a big step for the whole industry. Being able to visualize mm-hmm. in, in, yeah. in 3D. Yeah, because it's so complicated and everybody's so hesitant. You know, people don't think twice about buying a pair of shoes or buying a new shirt or something because if it doesn't look good or doesn't quite what you thought it was going to be it just hangs in the back of the closet but you buy a sofa it's sitting in the middle of the room and you know there's no way to get around it and either you quit inviting people over or you sit there and just regret that you bought it and so people take a long time to think about it's this it's such a big decision yeah. for people and um, i think anything that can give them more confidence in what they're purchasing uh, and being able to see what it's going to look like and the other things that are going to go with it. Mm. But then also being able to see what it looks like with different colored walls, different colored floors, um, the pillows. I mean, the more information, the more you can give them, the more you're going to get to the point where it's like, yes, this is exactly what I want. And they're, they just can't wait to sign the dotted line. So these visual tools are, are mm. going to enable. And that's one of the things that we're working on right now. We're in the process of converting all of our product into 3D models. And it's a very time-consuming and complicated thing. But as soon as we get that asset completed, Mm -hmm. then being able to switch the fabrics and the legs and add nail head and do all that stuff, um, it's going to make it so much easier. And that's one of the steps to get to this 3D virtual reality. Right. I think there's going to be a shakeout in the industry, too. And consumers are going to want to go to a place that's serious about helping to make their house a home. The whole thing of online only and I'll buy it. If I don't like it, I'll return it. It's, it's, it, it, it's going to make companies super unprofitable. Delivery is a big expense. So these companies that are disruptors, they're going to disrupt themselves. And we've seen it from you know, when, when the first dot-com furniture company came on board and said, free delivery. Not so easy. Yeah. So, so, so there, there's, there, there's some companies out there now that are doing some business, but they're starting to see. But you watch all, look at a lot of these online companies, apparel or whatever, they're starting to open up stores. You, you, customers want to go and see and touch. It's not, yes, they will buy it online, but they have to know the brand. And that's why we are so excited about our company because we're a 30-year brand. A lot of people know it. And they can rely on it. So we think that's very much the future of what's going to happen, giving customers a, a true experience, not disco balls and flashing screens in the store, but an experience with a design associate. For interior designers, when they come in our store, our people act like their best assistant. Right. We, we give them, we enable them to take care of their clients in a superior way. 
So I've got to get you out of here. I'm going to be in trouble with your vast staff. So uh, my guests have been Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams, the founders of the company that bears their name. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dennis. It's great to see you again. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.